Good evening, everyone. Some of you know that I'm just coming out of a long period of seclusion. For the past 13 months, I've been in retreat in a small cabin in the woods in the mountains of Southern Oregon. And some of you here, uh, some of you and the yogis and this beautiful teaching team has really been a huge part of supporting our retreat. I'm really grateful for all of this support, this sense of sangha. Even as I was alone and mostly in silence for the past year. In this cabin in the woods, it's, you know, it's comfortable, but it's somewhat rustic. There's wood heat, and now we have running water, which is an upgrade, but there's no hot water in the cabin, and no electricity, and no Wi-Fi. So there's a lot of simplicity this last year. No music, no movies, a lot of being alone with myself. So immediately in coming out, this was just two weeks ago, came out, signed up for Disney Plus. (laughs) (laughs) And I have been watching movies. So the first two movies I watched, (laughs) so give you a good sense of my taste, Encanto and In the Heights. Both Lin-Manuel Miranda movies. Music, so beautiful. And it's been surprising to watch these movies and to feel so much emotion just right there with the pain and the sorrow of it. When the house starts breaking, the casa and Mirabel, it's her fault. So much stress, what's going to (laughs) happen? And then when Doña Claudia dies, remember that? And everybody comes and gathers the candles and they're singing, Alabanza. Just so, I mean, this heart so moved, so in it. And then all the celebration at the end when the grandmother forgives Mirabel. So surprising. These waves are even bigger than they used to be. And in my daily life, too, just huge emotions, technicolor. Surprising. <laughs> But the difference, there's a difference. And the difference that I've been noticing just in these last two weeks is that all the while, the big waves, a lot going on, there's a knowing of it that's very steady and very quiet and very still. This mind that can be so caught up in the movie, so entranced, And yet also know it's just a movie. I'm watching a movie right now. Both at the same time. So in daily life, even just these last two weeks, when I'm a mess and there's all this reactivity and waves going, there's this quiet knowing. It's very steady in the middle of it. Sometimes we call this equipoise. A poise, a balance, a grace that develops through practice, through just what you're doing here. I've heard it from you in these group meetings, and how surprising it is. It's kind of like a blessing when that steadiness descends. It's just like what Tueri was talking about in her talk, this sense of, doesn't matter what's happening with the hindrances, all kinds of drama happening or bliss happening. 
And there's just this okayness. There's a deep steadiness, a knowing. So equipoise, equanimity, this beautiful word in Pali, tatra majatata. Tatra majatata, it's fun to say. And it also has onomatopoeia. It sounds like what it means. So you've got the tata, right? Tatra, tatra, tata. It's a shaking. And then maja, right in the middle. Maja means in the middle, in the middle of things. Tatra, maja, tata. And the meaning is that steadiness, an unshakability that's right there in the middle of a world that's shaking. When everything is shaking, can we find our center? This unshakable deliverance of the mind. That's what we're training in. And we've all seen it. Hikim's beautiful movement, when we clear out the energy. And there's that moment at the end of the exhale that's steady in a world that's shaking. In group today, a beautiful comment, really recognizing the dukkha of the world. So we've been using these poly terms And for those who are unfamiliar, dukkha is pointing to this deep sense of, sometimes it's translated as suffering, but it's more subtle than that sometimes. It's just a kind of unreliability. It's the shakiness that we sense. There's an underlying stress as we move through our days, a sense of, I can't really control this, kind of rub the rub of being alive, that's dukkha. And so this comment was really looking at, there's dukkha in the world. We're living in times of war, in times of sickness, in times of oppression and great divide. And so sure, we can sit here and talk about dukkha. So we've got three warm meals. So nice to see the cooks here. Beautifully served meals. And everything's pretty nice here, right? We're comfortable. We have what we need. So what does this have to do with the deep, the very real suffering that's happening out there in the world? A few years ago, on this very retreat, on New Year's Eve, we were teaching with Pascal Eau Claire, giving this talk. And this is what he said. Some of you are here. That in this practice, we're learning to be with these aching and complex hearts so that we can learn to be with this aching and complex world. We're in training for this. And as we've seen, Eugene was naming this alignment with things as they are that practice brings us into a relationship, an intimacy with reality as it is. When we're in wise relationship with this heart-mind, with the world as it is, we begin to know what to do, how to be, how to show up, what to say 
how to be with each other, how to live in accordance with our values. It's what we're doing. We learn what we can actually do in response and also how to let go of that that's out of our control. And so a Zen koan says, a monk asked Yun Men, what are the teachings of a whole lifetime? Yun Men says, an appropriate response. The whole of the path, the teachings of a whole lifetime, is just an appropriate response. Okay, so we get here on retreat, we're training to be with this heart-mind so we can be in the world. We show up and all this stuff starts happening. Got emotions and thought patterns and all kinds of difficulty in the body. Also maybe some bliss. We've heard some sense of deep presence and stillness starts to come. But we keep taking all this personally don't we? My body, my pain, my emotion, my struggle, my obstacle. So we're appropriating experience moment by moment by moment. We're in this story. We're in a movie. And we are the star. All about this, all of it, me, mine, how am I doing? Am I doing well enough? Do I look good walking? How's it going? (laughs) So we really think we're in control of the situation, don't we? All these questions like, am I doing it right? Am I getting it right? Is this the right pace? Is this the right object? And then the line of doubt that always says, not quite right, right? It's better to be with the breath. It's better to be slower. It's better to be a different person than who I am, right? Got to get it together. But this undermining, like, I'm not doing it well, Because the culture has trained us that if we're struggling, it's our fault. I did something wrong. That's why I'm suffering, right? It also says, if we're doing great, it's about me. I did this. I'm I'm doing great. I'm having a great day. My practice is flowing. It's all about me. And when we start to take all of this personally, I'm sure you've seen this this appropriation of ourselves and the world, it leads to more stress, right? This illusion of control, we keep trying to control, and more and more we see we're not. Shame and guilt and judgment and frustration arises. More and more and more contraction. And so some of you have come in and said these beautiful insights about I realize I'm not in control. Anybody seen that? Like, oh, it's just all happening here without my say. I don't get to say when the pain comes or when it goes. I didn't choose this thought, right? Where did this thought come from? And the more we see that we're much less in control than we think we are, how things are just continuing on naturally, we're starting to see more of reality. Just experience happening all on its own. We're not making any of this happen. So we'll do an exercise just to show this. Some of you know this exercise well. Here we are. We're all aware, right? Are you aware? Everybody aware? Some of you? So we can be aware, you know you're listening, right? You can know that we're sitting or standing. So right now, stop being aware. Really, stop. Just stop. Stop being aware. Why are you laughing? (laughs) Can you do it? Immediately we see the futility can't control awareness. We don't make it happen, and we can't stop it. 
It's happening. And that's true of everything. It's true of everything. So along the path, we start to take things a little less personally. We start to see, oh, it's actually not all about me and my control. And the irony is, as we keep surrendering, really deep surrender to things as they are, we release that control. We give things back to nature. We stop appropriating them. Just let experience be experience. Let the emotion be the emotion without taking it so personally. Things open. There's more space, as we were saying. And there's actually more agency in that space as we keep letting go as we keep letting go. In that space and agency, we learn to respond wisely, an appropriate response. Munindraji, our beloved lineage forefather, Joseph Goldstein's teacher, he has this phrase we all love. He just said, it's just empty phenomena rolling along. Have you seen that? You're just moving through the day. It's all just happening, right? Just watching the movie. It's all unfolding. And that knowing is what develops the steadiness in the middle of the shake. As Dawn was so beautifully saying yesterday, we're learning to inhabit our ancestral homeland. That letting go and letting go and letting go helps us come home to our turf. It's our native inheritance, this steadiness. Not me or mine, but the nature of things. That's our ancestral home. It's a safe place to abide in the middle of a world that's shaking. this alignment with reality, this intimacy with all things. It's like when we get out of our own way, there's this deep connection and intimacy that we feel. Have we felt that? Connection with the rain, the connection with the trees, this intimacy. So I love Eugene was saying he really likes this phrase, right view, right? Right, the sense of being in alignment the rightness of it. And Don quoted August Wilson saying, you got to get right with yourself. That's what we're doing. And the name for this view that I'm talking about, this absence of self, this emptiness at the core of things, the Buddha called it samaditi. Sama often translated as right or wise. Diti is a view. The right view is seeing the impersonal nature of things. Another translation of sama is complete. A complete view. A fullness of view. How is it to see the whole picture without you at the center? And so we see all these lists. We hear about the four establishments of mindfulness and the sense spheres. All of these lists, the way the Buddha categorized reality. And every single one of them, when we read the suttas, we hear, not me, not mine. Complete view means relinquishing. Anything we're holding on to, anything we're appropriating. Sometimes we hear it, this, this, is a fra- this is a phrase we hear, that we're giving ourselves back to nature. That this empty phenomena rolling along is just nature. Just like when you're walking outside and you see the tree and the water running now, rushing in the creeks, and the birds, it's all just happening. Is anybody appropriating that nature? That's us too. It's 
same as the tree, same as the rain, all just unfolding causes and conditions. And the Buddha had so many beautiful ways of naming this. He says in the Samyutta, he says, the instructed noble disciple, that's us. We're noble, he said that. The noble yogi, she understands form subject to arising. Form is in the body, as in the wood, the buildings, the trees. All of this is form. Form is subject to arising. She understands thus, form is subject to vanishing. She understands form subject to arising and vanishing. And he goes on this long list. All of it is just subject to arising and vanishing. And knowing this is called true knowledge. In this way, she's arrived at true knowledge. The path of knowing and seeing things as they are. This is complete view. Wise view. All these beautiful images that the Buddha offers us, that it's like a mirage, that this life is like a magic trick. You know, we show up and we think we have a story and a person and all these things are so real. We start really looking, we see it's all hollow in the middle. It's like the trunk of a tree that's hollow. There's no person, there's nobody at the center of all this. It's a kind of absence. And sometimes I've heard from you when we start to touch in on this emptiness or this absence of self, this sense of nobody owning anything, anywhere. Sometimes it's very disorienting. We had this. It's part of the path. You know, it's jolting. And it feels so scary, like, oh, I'm going to lose myself. And some kind of irrational, even fear of dying. If I really go into this emptiness or this absence of self, what's going to happen? We don't know. It's so disorienting and scary. So that's why we need this steadiness of the mind, this tatra majatata. We need an unshakability because parts of the path can be so new. One of my teachers, Tibetan teachers, uses this analogy that practice is like jumping out of an airplane, free fall. And at that point, when we start to see the absence of a self, it's like we look behind and we realize we don't have a parachute on, falling through space. And there's panic there. There's terror, there's fear. There's also just a kind of like, I don't know about this. This is not what I signed up for. What am I doing really? Is this a good thing? Right? Doubt comes. As we keep practicing, seeing again and again the truth of things, we see, oh, it's always been this way. Right? There's actually no self to get rid of. Never been. And that's equivalent to looking down as you're falling, and you see there's no ground. There's no ground. And then, how free is that? The free fall. So free. So free. Dawn, last night, was beautifully talking about uh, these three defilements of mind. We hear a lot about this in the teachings of greed, aversion, and delusion. Whenever these arise, a pretty good pointer that some kind of self is happening. We got the delusion of a self, and that often leads to wanting. I want this thing. I don't want that thing. And one way we can practice mindfulness of mind is really seeing when is there a lot of self here? When is there a kind of thickness? You know, they often come as a whole party, the three of them. 
delusion of self, really needing this thing now. Oh, but I can't have that thought. It's bad. Judging ourselves for it. So there's a lot of appropriation. I'll give you an example. We talked a lot about body pain, right? I think everyone, some kind of body pain on retreat. We think that we are this body, right? This is me. This body's me. We also think we own the body, right? I'm in charge of this body. So do you see that there's already a contradiction there? How can we both be this body and also own it? Which is it? Are we the body or the one who owns it, the one who's in control? So that already doesn't make sense. And then even further, can we control the pain in the body? If we really were the body, wouldn't we be able to determine when we got sick and when we got well and decide, I'm actually not going to age. Thank you. (laughs) Right? But so humbling just sitting here and being like, wow, we're so identified with this whole, this organism that is really just doing its thing, just like awareness, right? Can you stop awareness? Same thing. The body's just nature. It just keeps going. And so the more that we remind ourselves of this wise view, this full view of reality as arising and vanishing, just empty phenomena, the more that we can create some space with these defilements. Craving and aversion, they still arise, right? Maybe even bigger waves, technicolor emotion, but there's space between them. And so the wisdom has room to grow to understand them. We start to see how they function, how they feed off each other, how certain habits of mind help them grow and other habits of mind, just like Don was saying, help them diminish. So an appropriate response, wisdom, quiet, very practical wisdom grows that knows how to work with them skillfully. It's kind of like they're wild animals. Ever feel that while you're sitting and you're watching all the machinations of the mind and it's all drama things. And we know with the hindrances and these delusions, these defilements, they're kind of dangerous, right? If we're not careful, they're going to lead us into dangerous territory. So like a wild animal, we give them some space and we observe them. How do they work? And how do I work with them skillfully so I can kind of get out of this dangerous territory here? Wisdom grows. So another story from my retreat. You know, in long retreat, day after day, week after week, and month, it's like you have stretched, timeless, interminable retreat time. And we work so hard to get that, you know, it was years actually of planning for this and saving money and having the conditions where we could do it. And then, you know, getting to this cabin so alone, so silent, so heavy. Have you felt that here some? Like just the weight of being with yourself moment by moment, walking and sitting and walking and sitting, no distraction like I felt face to face with this kind of existential. Sometimes it came as existential angst, anxiety about things, or fear, kind of dread, or just this being weighed down by time. Like, what am I going to do with myself? I just finished lunch. I've got a whole afternoon. (laughs) So much. It's a heaviness being alive. It's hard, isn't it? It's hard to be human. (laughs) And so as I I worked at this, especially in the beginning of the year, I watched the mind choose its favorite story, right? And go to it as a kind of escape. But so ironic because the story was so painful. So I feel sort of embarrassed to admit this publicly. But my favorite story was about my enemy. I have an enemy. I do. And there's someone I really don't like at all. Really not. 
and so there's so much rage, really. And I would, I would spend, I would watch the mind sort of try to avoid that existential boredom, angst, by fixating on this person and then just churning about how much I hate her. <laughs> like, not pleasant, but it, we just get stuck. And I watch that again and again and again. So painful. Inside, nothing's happening, right? You're just sitting, like Tuari was saying. But you're so caught up in the drama. And then I started to see how painful. I'm already suffering. And then I layer on the drama story and all the hatred and rage, and it gets worse and worse. And I watched the mindfulness decrease. Right? I could watch my mind believe more and more and more in my story. And mindfulness went down, wisdom went down. The ability to pull myself out of it, very difficult, you know, after some moments of indulging that. And because I had so much time, week after week, month after month, I got pretty good at recognizing that. You know, over time, it was so familiar. I could see actually some compassion arose. Like, look at you, just making it harder. And so it was like less and less time to come out of it, to where now I can really see, even as it's arising, oh, okay, we're not going to go into that territory, right? That doesn't lead anywhere good. There's more capacity to respond, right? To know it as it's coming. But it takes a lot of patience to get familiar with that. You have to follow the story and find yourself in deep water in order to learn how to get out of it over time. And it's kind of like the poem that Tuari read, you know, the mosquitoes that are dodging the raindrops and then even hitching a ride on the raindrop. Like we get skillful at navigating those stories because we don't believe them. And we see the emptiness of self, just nature coming, just nature. The rage, it's okay. <laughs> Not me or mine, just rage. And so as we keep reminding ourselves of this complete view, the intimacy grows, even intimacy with rage, even intimacy with all the drama. And we soften. This beautiful Dogen quote that Eugene reads every time, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to become intimate with all things. When intimate with all things, your body and mind, as well as the bodies and minds of others, they drop away. No trace of enlightenment remains. And this no trace continues endlessly. What does that mean? I don't know. But I could say there's something that it's pointing to. It feels to me like it's pointing. This no trace continues endlessly. That's the absence in the middle of things. The hollow tree trunk. Or maybe even that steadiness in the shaky. These little moments of mini nibbanas, like Dawn was quoting last night, Ajahn Buddha Dasa, pointing out all those moments where we have a no trace and it's continuing in your practice. I've heard you. I know you're having these experiences. It's just the absence of stress, right? The kind of freedom, that free fall. And as we get familiar with that absence, it, the mind inclines more and more towards it. We start to see what we didn't see before. The view becomes more complete. Oh, this absence is happening all the time. This no trace is continuing endlessly. It's like we remove a whole filter that's between us and the world. Sokni Rinpoche, my beloved teacher, he likes saying, it's like just taking off your hat. Take off your hat. And there's such a lightness, the lightness of being. Everything becomes vivid. You know, it's like the sky is touching you, touching the world. We're not turning away from the suffering. And so then everything becomes so lovable 
doesn't it? I heard from you, one of you, somebody had a love affair with an egg. You know, and people become so cute, so adorable, <laughs> right? Just We're just trying to make it through. Showing up again and again. So love becomes more pure. You know, we remove that filter, we get out of the way, and the heart's there, it's right there with that care and the ability to hold the suffering, this responsiveness, it's here, it's already here. Hmm. So we remind ourselves of samaditi, this wise view again and again. The magic of the practice is that sometimes it's like the hat is already off. That this arises naturally, we see, right? Don't we? You see, oh, there's actually nothing here. Mingyur Rinpoche, my other favorite Tibetan teacher, he says, we're faking it till we make it. Right? We train in wise view again and again, and then it arises on its own without any effort. And eventually that's just how we are. We're just living in that. So in any given moment, you might have seen this. There's two things happening in any moment. There's the object, which can be, as we talked about, can be body, sensations, feeling tone. It can be an object in the mind. It can be a thought or an emotion. All these are objects of mindfulness. That's the first thing that's happening. The second thing that's happening is there is a knowing of it. And this object and the knowing are arising again and again. This is the whole of experience. There's just the object and the knowing. And the more that we start to really inhabit that sense of knowing, the objects doesn't matter. They can come and go. Whatever object it is, doesn't matter. Breath, body, sounds, Vedana, thoughts and emotions. We're more steady in the knowing of it. Objects, we're not fixing the objects. We don't have to change them. We're being with them. And with that knowing, you can really start to look at that. Right? So we've known, we've seen, can't stop it. Can't stop the knowing. But where does that knowing come from? Does it have a location? Can you put your finger on it? Is it here? Is it here? Is it even in the body anywhere or is it outside the body? That knowing. And who is knowing? We can ask these questions and use kind of creativity with your investigation to ask these questions about knowing. Again and again, it's going to point you to complete view. And you'll feel that sound of disorientation. I can't find it. I don't know. I don't know where it's coming from. There's something here happening, but I can't put my finger on it. And that's the free fall. Then we rest. Oh, I'm actually seeing things more fully here. We Rest in that space of not knowing, of not finding it. Knowing and not finding. And you rest there. So Tuari was teaching so beautifully this morning about thinking and thoughts. I'll just offer one image because it's so wet and beautiful right now. Isn't it amazing? Never seen the creek so high. So mindfulness of thinking can be like that. It's like there's this rushing river just flowing by all the thinking. Have you had that? Thinking, 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 thinking. But when we climb out onto the riverbank, that's knowing the thoughts. You can be steady. Again, tatra right there on the riverbank, solid, grounded, knowing all the thoughts flowing by, just like a river, just like a river. Sometimes they're slow and steady. Sometimes they're really churning, white water and rapids happening. But you are knowing because you're on the riverbank, just watching the flow. 
We don't get swept away by them so much. And even in the last few days, we've, we've seen there's such stillness that comes, right? The capacity to be with that thinking really develops as our unification of mind grows. So then we get intimate with them, we really start to see. So a story about a friend of mine, Kate Johnson. She wrote a beautiful book. It's called Radical Friendship. I recommend it. She tells this story about being in long retreat. Very long retreat, three months at IMS. And she's just moving through the day, just as you have been. Same schedule, sitting and walking. And over time, she started to watch one of these thoughts floating by on the river, slightly undermining, not mindful enough. I should be walking slower. Going to get tea. Too lazy. Putting honey in the tea. Not hardcore enough. Right? This like tiny, quiet voice that was sort of jabbing, you know, jabbing, undermining, not worthy, not good enough, got to do it better. Again and again, seeing these jab. And so she went to her teacher. He teacher said, what about giving that a name? What about giving that voice a name? So she named it Jabba the Hut, right? Jabbing. And every time it came up, she'd just be like, hey, Jabba, right? Here you are. I hear you. I know you're trying to help me, but let's just sit here and watch the breath together. You know, kind of befriending. And that's, there's that spaciousness, not identified with Jabba, also including not turning away, and a kind of compassion, like, oh, we're just trying to do it well, but let's just practice. So we can befriend our thoughts as we get intimate with them. They don't control us anymore. And in fact, we can have some humor about it. <laughs> I got a really nice haiku today from one of you. Humor. How are we with all these personalities inside? Because when we start seeing how quirky they are, the most appropriate response is really just to play, like fun. We're funky and we're so weird and funny. So another story, just how this can be very playful, right? This seeing of ourselves. So got two good friends, both serious practitioners. One is a, an artist, painter. The other one teaches the Dharma. He's a Dharma teacher. And so I was visiting them last year before the retreat, went to visit them in a new home. This home is beautiful, so beautifully decorated. So we're sitting there having dinner, and I said to my friend who's the painter, I said, you know, it's so beautiful in here. It's so simple and sparse, but so mindfully done. I said, it's like, it's like being in one of your paintings. You know, the environment, so welcoming. My other friend, her partner who teaches the Dharma, he was like, wait a minute, I helped decorate this room too. It wasn't just her. Like, I picked out the couch. I picked the blanket. And then he stopped himself, and he sang a song. And his song went like this. Me, 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 me. It's all about me. Appreciate me. Give me, give me the attention. He did it right there. <laughs> the little dinner. Me. It's like he could see that. He saw the appropriating in the moment. And that one who was like, wait a minute, I did it too. I want the compliment. And he caught himself and he just made it light, right? So funny, that one, the superstar. That's such a good moment. I think about that. I sing to myself now, me, 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 it's all about me. So we really notice with humor and lightness and compassion, how are we navigating this retreat? You have all your strategies. <laughs> When's the best time to take a shower? <laughs> What's the best walking path? Right? How to do it so I look really mindful? We're really strategizing all the time. And in some way, we start to have compassion and see we're just trying to make things okay. Right? We're just trying to feel safe. 
Those of you who are new, it's a new place. Like, is this really going to be okay for me? So another retreat story I'll tell. Some of you have heard this. It's my one of my favorite stories. So about a year ago, we had a big storm in Oregon in the mountains, and it just was dumping snow for days. Very unusual. Just snowing and snowing and snowing. Many, many feet of powder building up around the cabin. Hard to get around. I have these ancient snowshoes from like 1970s. Really, they're not so great. But like you have to have all the gear. It was cold. And anyway, it was a whole thing, all this snow. In the middle of the snow, started hearing sounds at night. So I'm going to bed. I'm getting ready. And there's this like rustling. You can hear kind of crinkling in the newspaper for the fire and restlessness. And I got scared, right? What is this, all this sound? So, of course, I woke up in the morning, and it's just mice, right? The mice have figured out a way to get into the cabin, and they're in my food. So Yogi Mind, right, is a really big deal. I was scared, stressed out. What do we do? And we have a really lovely caretaker, who has these, these traps, they're live traps, right? Have a heart traps that we put peanut butter in and inevitably, you know, I would go to sleep, the mice are nocturnal. So one or two in the morning, I would hear the trap go off. So here's his mouse. So I'd wake up and be all scared in the middle of the night. What am I gonna do? Now I have this mouse in a trap, I'm scared. I go to pick up the trap, and this poor mouse, right, big dark eyes, I mean, very cute, but it's also very scared, right, trembling. Sometimes they would pee because they're so scared. So we're both, we're both in it. <laughs> and the, the strategy, what I had to do, caretaker was very clear, you have to walk them far away, far from the cabin, so it wouldn't come back. So here it is, dark, late at night, powder, I'm putting on my snowshoes, getting all wrapped up, this poor mouse is trembling. And so as I walked, I had to walk far across a creek, you know, put it far across on the other side, and then I found this kind of trench where it wasn't snowy, so it'd be kind of safe for them. And uh, I would start singing for both of us, <laughs> it was chanting metta for us. So this is my chant, I would say. Um, hakam. Araka dewata Awera hon tu Abia paja hon tu Aniga hon tu Sukiatanam Ariharan tu this beautiful chant that's wishing, may you be safe. May you be free from your fear. May you care for yourself well. You know, so I sort of find my own system settling. We'd get across the creek. And then inevitably there's a moment where I'd put the trap down, open. Sometimes it took the mouse a little bit of time but it would find its way to the door and it would leap out. And it was like, my heart was leaping too. Like, you're free. (laughs) We were both free in the moment. It scurried down and I felt so relieved, so released for this little one. And also for me, like no more mice in the house. You go to bed, go back to bed. And eventually, over some weeks, we found the mouse hole, and we plugged it up, and they stopped coming. But for months after that, I was finding all these little pockets of prunes. <laughs> like some mouse had gotten into the bag of prunes, and they were squirreled away in the socks and in my gloves, <laughs> and the little, the little prunes in the wood pile. And I started to see, you know, these mice, they're so restless, and they're just trying to make it okay, right? Just trying to stash away some prunes so that they'll be all right later. And then really seeing, like, that's like us. Isn't that just like us? We're just trying to be okay. 
And just sing to that as we take it out. <laughs> May you be well. May you be safe. <laughs> mm, thank you. So as we become intimate and familiar with all of our strategies, we can really have compassion. Compassion for the spiders. Doesn't really know what's happening here. Thank you. We got it. Okay. So compassion, that's the natural outbirth of wise view. We can identify with this experience and then take it out to safety. Just got a note about shame, working with shame and judgment and remorse. And I think this is also part of wise view, that when we start to see all our strategies, and also we're reviewing the past. Anybody been doing that? Reviewing the past. Come, sometimes remorse, regret comes up. We have to see all these layers with wise view. You know, in that moment, we did that thing in the past, we were just doing the best we, we could. You know, we didn't know what we didn't know in the past. And it was also just nature. So with this wise view, forgiveness can start to come. Right? Self-compassion for that one who didn't know any better. And compassion for this one here that's just trying to figure it out too. Compassion. More and more, this clarity, this complete view helps us see what to do in the moment. And I'm sure you've seen this, even a very quiet kind of practical intuition that's like, oh, it's time to walk right now. Oh, I could actually do some metta for myself and that would be skillful. Right? We're in touch with our longing for happiness and the wisdom that knows how to get there is growing. So in the world that's so useful, we know when to speak, when to stand up and speak the truth to power. We also know when to stay quiet. And often, you know, we hear about compassion and wisdom and they feel so highfalutin and kind of transcendent. But this kind of wisdom I'm talking about is very practical, really quiet. Just knows what to do in any given moment, how to be. And so through our mindfulness, through this continuity that we're building, we're gathering data. We're learning about the heart and mind. We're remembering the absence at the center of things. We're touching into the one that's steady right in the middle of the shaking world. And the mind that is growing in this information, starting to know and see a more complete view, we become agents of our own lives. The Zen koan that says, the teachings of a whole lifetime are just an appropriate response. It's just that. We're still nobody going nowhere. Nobody owning anything, just watching a movie. The whole thing, the whole panoply unfolding. But the magic of this teaching is that we, when we let go of clinging to the self, all the other clingings fall away. And we have access to incredible resources then, more energy, more aliveness, and this deep sense of grace that can navigate this world that is in so need of these qualities. The great Dzogchen master Dogo Kensei says, when you recognize the empty, selfless nature of phenomena, the energy to bring about the good of others dawns uncontrived and effortless. So wise view gives birth to compassion. And it's uncontrived, and it's effortless. So we train to be with this aching and complex heart. 
so we can be in the aching and complex world with that kind of poise that can stay steady and knows what to do. So we can just sit quietly for a moment or two. When you recognize the empty, selfless nature of phenomena, the energy to bring about the good of others dawns uncontrived and effortless. Thank you for your kind attention. And it is New Year's Eve, after all, even though that's also empty. (laughs) Just another day. We're going to do some ritual. And so I'm going to say some things about how to prepare for this time ahead and how it will unfold. At the end of the year, it's always such a nice way to spend some time reflecting. And here we are in a field of practice. We're already releasing. We're already letting go of a lot, right? We're practicing this kind of forgiveness and releasing the past. And so tonight, and part of our ritual, it's going to be letting go, going to be working with what am I ready to put down? So outside the doors, as you go into your walking practice, There's lots of pieces of little paper, note paper, and pens. And so the invitation is to take a paper and a pen, and sometime in the next hour or so, a couple hours, you can think about what is it that you're really ready to put down? What are you letting go of from the last year, the last 20 years? (laughs) What are you ready to release? And just to write a few notes on the paper couple words, sentence, you could draw, whatever feels right about what you're ready to put down. So just that page. And then what we're going to do is there's time for walking now. We're going to come back for a sit. And then we'll have actually a, a snack in the dining hall. Oh, this is so exciting. Um, and then when you come back, We're going to have a sit at 9.45. Bring your paper. So make sure you have your paper in the hall for the rest of the ritual and the ceremony. And when we come back, we'll do a sit. Tuari will lead. And we'll name a little bit more about how the evening will unfold. There'll be a little more walking, sitting. And then we'll have this beautiful ritual about intention setting, releasing, be a fire outside, candles, or just... The invitation is to stay with us. We're all going to be here staying up late. Um, Also, to take care of yourself if you're feeling like that was the end of a long day and sleep is what you need. Big invitation to sleep. But to know that we're heading into this evening of ritual and ceremony, chanting all the things together through up until midnight. Okay? So enjoy your thinking about releasing what you want to let go of. We're running a little late. And so maybe what I'd propose is that we um, we do a little bit of walking, maybe 10 or 15 minutes of walking. And Hakim, I think, is going to ring the bell. Maybe if you ring the bell, Hakim, at, um, in 10 minutes to call us back to the hall. And we'll have just a short sit 
from 9 until 9.15. Short sit, and then it's snack time. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.